Well, it's one of those things where you look back on it and it all seems inevitable and every step led this way, but that was not, there was no plan. You know, it wasn't even a direction I particularly cared to follow. Um, I grew up in Nebraska and something about an urge to get to New York City emerged very early in my life. And one of my takeaways of looking back is the key to getting where you want to be is to listen, to hear that voice mm. and to have a sort of stillness, to have something contemplative in your life, to be self-driven enough to just sit and listen, keep a diary or something to access these innermost uh, lessons that you're getting from yourself. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living Podcast. It's season four, and here we are still reimagining, rethinking, and redefining what it means to be in midlife and what's possible as we age. We are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. I created this podcast to give you inspiration and let you know you're not alone in feeling stuck in midlife. Both men and women are welcome here, but if you are a woman, I also invite you to join the Age Agitators Club for Women, where we come together monthly to hatch our plans for making waves as we age. Being part of this community for women will remind you on a regular basis that you're not too old, and it's never too late to do that thing you've been thinking about. You can find more information at latebloomerliving.com forward slash community, and I hope to see you there. Hello, my friend. I hope you're doing great. It's late January. How's it going? <laughs> I have to tell you, the beginning of my year has been a little nutty. Um, my father passed away December 28th. I wasn't sure I was going to talk about that today, but there it is. Um, you know... What it's really brought home for me is that I ended up spending three weeks approximately in Arizona with my mom after my dad passed as we made his funeral arrangements and, and all those things. And what that did was it took me out of my regular, my regular schedule, my uh, regular surroundings, all those things. And, you know, when you do something like that, it uh, it's interesting because it, it really shakes things up, doesn't it? I imagine you've been through something like that at some point in your life. It's a transition of its own. And it's got me thinking about where I'm going from here. I don't have any answers yet. That's okay. So speaking of that, I'm really excited to introduce you to today's guest. His name is Bruce Whitaker. He is a poet. He wasn't always a poet. He, today in our conversation, is going to share his journey from being an accountant to a career in theater, which was 30 years long, to then becoming a poet. But 
really this conversation is more than just a journey through career transitions. It's a deep dive into the creative process, self-discovery, and the power of trusting your inner voice. Bruce also discusses his grandmother, Jenny Hicks. She was a pioneer painter from Nebraska, and her life became the subject of his first poetry book, which was titled The Elk and the Glade. And he highlights the lessons learned from his grandmother's journey, including not waiting for the gatekeepers. We are living in an extraordinary time right now when there are possibilities open to you creatively, in your career, all kinds of things where we are now able, because of technology and such, to get around those gatekeepers. And you don't need to wait for permission. Yeah. So I'm excited for you to hear this conversation. So without further ado... Here's Bruce Whitaker. Let's go. Hey, Bruce, thank you so much for being with me today. It's great to be here, Vaughn. Thank you for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. It feels like, I don't know, it feels like it's been a while since we set it up and now here we are finally, right? Yes, it's been. (laughs) What a a fast autumn it's been. Yes, indeed. It has been. Time flies, man. Well, you have such an interesting story. I'm so excited for people to hear this today. You started off as an accountant and you're a poet now. Yes. That's amazing. So can you you give a little bit of like, how did that happen? (laughs) Well, it's one of those things where you look back on it and it all seems inevitable and every step led this way, but that was not. There was no plan, you know, it wasn't even a direction I particularly cared to follow. Um, I grew up in Nebraska and something about an urge to get to New York City emerged very early in my life. Like my mom was watching the edge of night on television, which was this, this image was a skyline of New York with a day side and a night side. And I was like four years old going, I'm going to be there. Oh my gosh, Bruce, I had the same, not exactly <laughs> the same, but um, from about the time I was seven years old, I knew I wanted to live in New York City. That was, I, my dad grew up in Poughkeepsie. I grew up in West Texas, by the way. So, oh, so you know, that feeling, that prairie feeling. Yeah. Yes, yes. And um, my dad is from Poughkeepsie, New York, and we came out to the New York area to visit for the first time when I was about six or seven, probably seven. And we came to the city and I remember vividly driving through that my aunt and uncle bought us tickets to go see Beatlemania on Broadway. (laughs) And we drove in and we were in my uncle's van and we drove through Times Square. And I remember looking out the van and I think we hit like a bus hit the hit the rear view mirror on the van there was like oh no you know clipped them and all that no big deal nobody got hurt we didn't even stop i don't think and and we went and saw the show but i just remember man and it was gritty back then this was like mid 70s mm-hmm. triple x things were everywhere and i was like i am going to live here someday 
Well, that's exactly, I first came to the city in high school in the early 70s, and it was exactly that. The subways were, uh, we would say now they're canvases for art, but at that time they were <laughs> shocking yeah. to uh, a kid from the sticks. And I had to be here. And, you know, the, there was the, eventually the blackout and the riots and yeah. everybody's like, how can you move there? And I was like, that's even better. <laughs> I'm even more determined. We're kindred spirits, Bruce. <laughs> and so, but that's, I think there was a kind of urge. And one of my takeaways of looking back is the key to getting where you want to be is to listen, to hear that voice mm. and to have a sort of stillness to have something contemplative in your life, to be self-driven enough to just sit and listen, keep a diary or something to access these innermost uh, lessons that you're getting from yourself. And the first lesson that led me here was you've got to come to New York. So I chose accounting because coming out of University of Nebraska, it was a highly portable degree, which proved to be the case. I came here then I moved to Rome all on that degree and garnered enormous life experience, even though it was a total sidetrack of terms of what I wanted to do on a daily basis. But listening as you did, listening to that inner self, telling you where to go is I think the first lesson I look back on and say, I, at least I had my ears open, you know? Um, and that was really important. Yeah, oh my goodness. So how old were you when you first moved to New York City? 22. 22. Just a I had a job. I got hired already. So I didn't come here. I came here with a suitcase in the boxes, but I already had a job. And that was yeah. coming from the kind of background. My dad was in college when I was born. We lived in a trailer house. You know, we had two younger brothers. I, that's the way it had to be. You know, I could not come here and have mom and dad pay for three months of auditions or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, to get there, I had to get myself here with a job or it just wasn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 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 So when you say you couldn't pay, have your parents pay to get you there for three months of auditions, I'm hearing the word audition. And so I, I, know I used, you have a theater background. Yeah, I have a theater background. So I'm like, was that like something that you were that you ever wanted to do? I just have to ask that question. You know, it's funny. No, even though I spent most of my career in theater, and at this point in my life, I'd been through high school in debate and journalism, never theater. The only time I ever acted was um, many years later. I went to this laboratory in Italy and. I co-wrote a play and performed in it in Italian. And that was the only time I've, I've only acted in Italian. I've never acted in English in anything. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, so, I just acted in Italian. That, yeah, that's all. Yeah. I wrote a play in Italian and acted in it. That's all. Oh my gosh. And then, With a lot of help, a lot of coaching and help. But yes, that's my only acting experience. I was never... Um, theater itself. I love going to it. I had a very strong college theater program in my hometown. I saw a lot of shows when I was a kid all through college, but I, it was never something I was going to go to and perform. But you did end up working in the theater. So right. were now did, did working as an accountant, was that your was that your, were you working as an accountant for a theater company? I, th I know you didn't end up doing accounting in the theater, but was that how you moved in or how well, did that transition happen? So what it did, it, it was a sidetrack that kind of curved back 
I eventually, I worked for Price Waterhouse and then I worked for a publishing company. Getting back to writing, I sort of urged myself over to that. Then they moved their operations to Florida and I made the choice of not going with them. So I stayed in New York, mm -hmm. but then in that job search, I found a job in Rome. And by this time I had met my now husband, Pierce, his lifetime ambition had been to live in Rome. He was a computer tech guy. And so with his encouragement, I applied for it and was eventually hired. And so Rome gave broke up, broke me out of the sort of yuppie, you know, Manhattan nightlife single guy or, you know, gay life guy mm -hmm. and gave me a chance to look around the world differently. And what really tricked me off was I took my first vacation to Spain and in Barcelona, I ran into an American Express video crew making a travel video and they let me pal around with them for a full day. And we went to the vineyards at Cordonu, we went to Montserrat, we went to what little was built in Sagrada Familia at that point. And at the end of the day, I decided when I go back to the US, I knew Rome was not a long time thing. I'm not gonna get an MBA as I thought, I am gonna get an MFA, Masters of Fine Arts in something in theater, probably writing. I'm just gonna go for it. So the accounting brought me to a place where I could really open up and say, okay, this is, this was a, such an ordinary experience being with these people. But, you know, when you're a siloed accountant and everybody's an accountant or you're in a bureaucrat in Rome and everybody's a bureaucrat in Rome, and then all of a sudden there's a camera guy and a voiceover guy and, you know, a, a consultant who's leading them around this strange city and they're all really cool and they're fun you just kind of find a new world and you want to step into it. Wow. So you went, so you ended up at NYU, right? So I applied and I, I applied to three schools, Columbia, Yale, and NYU. I got into NYU and um, uh, we had this choice where we're going to stay in Rome and give this chance up. But uh, Pierce agreed to leave his dream city and come back to New York. And I got an MFA in dramatic writing, which was, my thesis was a screenplay, but I wrote a lot of plays and started reading plays for the Eugene O'Neill Theater Festival and other places. And that got me my job at Manhattan Theater Club as a literary manager. Um, <laughs> and then you ended up having a career in the theater for how many years was that? Uh, all, almost 30, well, 30 years, really. Um, right. I started yeah. there, I was there for five years. I went to Los Angeles and uh, read scripts for Kennedy Marshall, which is a fabulous production company. Um, and then came back to New York and was managing director of Signature Theater, which is an off-Broadway theater here. And then took a job as executive director of what was later called Theater Forward, which is an alliance of 20 major regional theaters working on corporate sponsorships. So they were all wonderful jobs. I was really lucky to get every one of them, but they weren't about writing primarily. Right. <laughs> so they were still getting, you know, closer and closer. There was a lot of writing in all these jobs, especially my last one. We had, we did research projects. We did proposals. We did galas with scripts, speeches. There was a lot of storytelling in that yeah. job. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. that was uh, that that sort of hunger was being fed a lot there. So when did so like 
when did poetry like did that just land on you what happened well it started i i trace it back to um when jackie kennedy died they read a poem called ithaca by kavafi an egyptian greek poet at her funeral um and it's a really fabulous poem about a life's journey and i was flying out Pierce had moved to Los Angeles. We were bi-coastal most of the 90s, so we flew out to LA. And I got a book of his poetry and read it. And I had never read poetry quite like that. He has a very unique voice. But it opened up the possibility of what poetry could be for me. And I read almost no poetry up until that point. In fact, when we were in Rome, a friend of ours came in. We had all these books. We had 30 boxes of books we'd shipped over to Rome. There was hardly a book of poetry in any of it. Tons of theater, everything else, but no poetry. So I sort of put that away and wrote a few haiku now and then. But then when I got into the the last job I had at Theater Forward, it kind of turned into a nine to five job, which none of my other jobs had been. And the capacity to write started to come back. But by this point, I knew how hard, how much gatekeeping goes on with theater and that this was not going to be the place I was going to score. So I started just casually writing poems now and then. I always had an urge to write something. And um, then about four years before, in the mid-teens, I started taking a couple of workshops. Uh, I vowed I would never get back into writers' rooms. I've been, you know, a dramaturg means you sit down and do script conferences with writers and help them with the next draft of their play or their screenplay. I swore I would never do that again. But um, I really responded to poetry workshops. And so I took some with really great poets, Rowan Ricardo Phillips and Alex Dimitrov and Jericho Brown and Mark Wunderlich. And um, that really, uh, some of those poems eventually got published and I sort of refined and refined and, um, and then when I retired in 2020, the most fortuitous theatrical retirement ever, just as everything shut down, I'm gonna say, I was really? like, good luck, you guys. And so, wow. Um, and that had been long planned. It wasn't like, oh, gee, I'm out of here. It was like, oh, I guess I'm going now, you guys. Good luck. You know? Wow. <laughs> so then I started writing very uh, every day and started submitting much more heavily and started getting more publications. and took off from there amazing amazing and so all of that leads you at some point back to your grandmother <laughs> so, right so the, we, i'm yeah. fascinated by by this familial tie between you and your grandmother yeah so my great-grandmother jenny hicks was a pioneer girl in nebraska in the 1880s and she was from Ohio. And when she was an older teenager, about 20 years old, she moved back to Ohio for a period of time and studied oil painting in Cleveland, then went back to Nebraska and continued painting kind of the way I wrote poetry before I retired. When she could, mm -hmm. um, her children would find sometimes lunch wasn't on the table because mom was painting and dad came in from the field to put the lunch on the table. And then finally, her grand, her husband died in the late 30s, and she was in her 60s by now. And she turned this into a career, and she sold over a 1,000 pictures out of her little home in Nebraska. 
And I wrote uh, my first book of poetry came out last year called The Elk in the Glade. And it's a series of poems about her life. And I can read a poem that kind of describes that turning point where she went from a hobbyist, she always called it her hobby, but she really was a professional, from a hobbyist to a professional. And if you don't mind, I could read oh, a section of that. Oh, so please do. The book is called The Elk in the Glade and the World of Pioneer and Painter Jenny Hicks. And this is from the poem called Coming to the White House. She lived in a little white house. So Arthur was her husband, by the way, who has just passed away. She's moved back into town to this little white house for the first time uh, back in town since she was a very young woman. So her daughter's name is Ruth and her daughter's friend is Gladys. A few days later, Ruth stopped by with her friend Gladys. They found Jenny in one of Arthur's old shirts the pantry wall lined with three paintings, a mountain cabin, a howling wolf, a cowboy on horseback, fighting through a blizzard to make his log cabin in the night. Mother, Ruth beamed, will you look at this? Gladys paused in the door. Jenny, my land, I had no idea. Jenny smiled, do you like them? Oh yes, I sure do. Which is your favorite? Uh, the cowboy, yeah, the cowboy. That's a nice one, mother, Ruth held it up. Well, you can have it then, Gladys. Oh, Jenny, no. Yes, please. What am I going to do with it? I just paint these to pass the time now that, well, the women paused. It had been such a short time, really, since. Jenny, I'll talk to Harold. I would like to have it, I guess, but I'll pay you for it. How much? No, 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 please. No, no. How much? Jenny shrugged. Oh, a couple of dollars. A uh, mother, I think you mean five dollars. Gladys smiled. Yes, that's about right. Five dollars. Jenny shook her head, but said nothing. Soon the White House had a steady traffic and Jenny was in the picture trade. Two or three pictures sold a week, mountain landscapes, wildlife, horses. She copied prints, calendars, postcards, and charged by size. She was a seamstress who sewed in oils to a pattern, often on demand. So that's her moment of transition. <laughs> Which... I mean, I'm, I'm I'm sure you must have thought of this. Makes me think of Grandma Moses. She was called the Grandma Moses of Nebraska. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. And she because... painted until her she was ninety. So this was just the start, and she painted basically another thirty years or so. Incredible, incredible. And it, you know, that whole story that that little bit that you just read, man. It's making me think of a very talented friend of mine who took up some some abstract acrylic painting uh and was prolific for some time there and would post them to facebook and then people would say oh it's beautiful including me it's beautiful uh, and, and and wouldn't sell them would only give them away mm. and couldn't see the value in their own work you know yeah. which is is incredible and I'm, I'm glad that she was talked in to selling her painting <laughs> well i think there's a couple lessons in that which is um don't be afraid of niche when you're making a transition you know if you if you're transitioning into a field if you're going to start a little in you're not going to be conrad hilton you know that's already happened be ready to be in a niche she she found her niche sort of accidentally as she didn't wait for a gallery. She didn't wait for reviews. She didn't wait for any of the certification. We did the first ever museum show of her work this year, wow. 50 years after she passed away. 
So the, a museum in Nebraska put this on. She didn't wait for any of that. And so don't let the gatekeepers hold you back is a very critical lesson. When you can get through them, great. That gives you the momentum to go on. But, and you know this from theater, the fewer gatekeepers you have to jump through, the better. And that's what Jenny found a way, sell out of the home, paint what you want, be open to other, to what sells, landscapes that were all mountainscapes, not prairie scapes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of the, the things that I, I learned from her life Amazing. and her transition. And what I'm also taking from this too, this whole, this whole conversation about the gatekeepers, because you said something earlier about you, you recognized that theater was not going to be your place. I forget the phrase you used to your place to land or your place to yeah. make it. I I reached a point um, in the theater where I was uh, I was 35 when I had my first child, and I had started kind of late for a woman in the theater. By the time I moved to New York, I was already 25, at, which is a little long in the tooth. As I think you know for 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 that industry, right? And so by the time I got to my to to my late, you know, to those mid thirties, I was working in regional theaters, but I felt like I was at this glass ceiling of where I could go. And what was frustrating to me about being an actress was the the gatekeeper aspect of being able to do what I loved. Somebody had to give me permission. Somebody mm-hmm. had to cast me in a play in order for me to do what I loved to do. And um, so many years later, when I found a camera and started, you know, playing with that aspect of of creativity, what was wonderful about it was that whether or not anybody ever hired me to be a photographer for to shoot family photos or anything, I could always pick up my camera and pointed at something that I thought was beautiful and try to take a great picture. And, and I think with poetry, you get that flexibility as well of being able to do your art. That is not it. Theater is wonderful because it is collaborative, but it is collaborative. And there's something wonderful about having access to some form of self-expression that is not, where you, you you don't need other people to to explore it. Yeah. So in poetry, there are lots of open mics. So you pick what you want to show and you get up and, pe- and people hear your words. In theater, as a playwright, you had to go through so many processes to have a reading of your work and people hear your work. Yeah. And so... And the internet has been fantastic to poetry. Um, I think it's one of the reasons that there's really been a boom in it because um, there's a, you know, you don't want to post too many things that you want eventually published in a bona fide journal because it's considered pre-published. But the electronic sharing of something once you do get published expands it beyond what often the publisher can do. You know, how many copies of a journal are sold versus how many people on my Facebook feed see that poem when I put it out there after the journal publishes it. So this whole interaction of a single short piece of work that can be read, it can be printed, it can be shared, it can be texted, is so much more viable for me at this point as a mode of expression. 
And I just found as I learned more and more about it, I'm continuing to learn. I took a workshop on Sunday. Um, the flexibility in poetry lets it do almost anything. Like this was a narrative poem. This was basically a play in ver in in line. It struck. I could see your your playwright background in what you read. Absolutely, I and I, we're going to do an audio book of this at some point. It's going to be. It's very listenable as yeah. that. And I, and so that's one version of poetry. And then there's lyrical poetry. And I write haiku every day, which is a great little exercise for compression and word mm. choice. So there's just so many dimensions to poetry that I enjoy playing with. I never I never tire of it. Amazing. Yeah, there, you, it's just endless what you could plumb the depths of it, right? And I have to say that that whole idea of the internet being and social media being good for poetry, I hadn't really thought about it, but I don't know that I would know the work of Mary Oliver if it weren't for social media posts with snippets of her work or, mm -hmm. you know, a whole, a whole poem. And, and she has become one of my favorite poets, um, you know, just because she's been shared by people that, that are in my, in my sphere, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. and that was during the pandemic, I started getting things published. There were calls coming in for pandemic related poetry. And so things started getting published very quickly. I had a wonderful 2020 of special order poems that got picked up. And, um, and, and there's also, you know, a chance to process my own experience of the pandemic very quickly. And my friend, the playwright was like, oh, gee, I'm trying to get someone to even answer the phone over there or answer an email because the theater shut down. Right. And um, so it kind of went in, in that, that different direction. But um, but I've also, I just have to say, I've been so lucky because I came into poetry knowing one person who was a poet. I met her at a birthday party of a mutual friend, um, Lynn McGee, and she started inviting me to her uh, readings that she was doing, a uh, featured reader, a real poet, and then open mics. So there, some of them were real, some of them were me. And then gradually I met everyone else, including the publisher of my next book, through that network. And so wow. now very quickly in three or four years, I feel as embedded in the poetry world of New York as I was in the theater world as a literary manager. That's incredible. At a very top theater. So it's just, uh, it's a very warm and embracing community with a lot going on. And it's been thrilling to step into it. My mind is going in about a bajillion directions right now. So I'm trying to focus on what I want my next question to be. Um, I'm thinking about, I guess what I want to ask you is, do you feel like coming to poetry later in life is... Uh, almost a natural progression in a way of there's like a, a depth of experience, you know, and, and, and maybe some self-knowledge that as a younger person, I don't, I don't know that we have it, <laughs> not all of us anyway, maybe some, some few um, people who are really tuned in tap, you know, tapped in to themselves. But do you feel like coming at it later at the, 
I, I can hardly even formulate my question. Do you well, know where I, I'm going with this? I can tell this? you what my sidetracks brought back to me in the poetry world. I can tell you that. So being a literary manager for a theater taught me how to very quickly survey and assess a field. Who's doing really well? Who should I know? Who should I read? Who should I get to know? Who should I follow? You know, that sort of discernment is the everyday task of a literary manager. And I think it's important for writers to be able to look at their field and say, this is me, this is not me. This is going to be someone I can learn from. And this is someone I, I can be not, you know, not having to follow everything they do. Um, I did a lot of project management work, basically as a theater producer and then in my past job. And when I put out The Elk and the Glade, I self-published that mm -hmm. because we wanted it out in time for the museum show. I couldn't have the gatekeepers saying, oh, God, I can't stand books about grandmas. You know, we're not going to do this one, <laughs> all yeah. that. So when uh, with the help of my current publisher, Roxanne Hoffman at Poets Wear Prada, I put this book together. Um, and it's won some recognition. It was beautifully designed by the people I asked to do that. But that project management was a skill I definitely got on the way to this. And um, and Roxanne Hoffman, my publisher's point is she wants poets to be empowered to do as much as they can for their work. I learned how to get reviews and all these things. So um, through her, so those kind, and I had a lot of press experience for my prior job. So I was comfortable with that approach. So everything fed to this. And yeah. I think all of our jobs lead to things that feed the next thing. You know, um, we've, I was talking to an interior decorator once and we agreed work is really just phone calls and lists. No matter what you do, it's phone calls and lists. That's, that's the same darn thing. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that. Boy, that's nothing, nothing said was ever truer, I think. <laughs> so, you know, you just don't have, you have to know what to say on the phone. That's all. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And then what, and then I guess the other part of that question I have um, that, that I was struggling with is really where has this led you in, in your own awareness of yourself? What, what have you learned about yourself mm. in going through this later in life pivot? Um, I think one of the deep learnings um, is getting back to trusting and listening to that inner self. Mm -hmm. And it plays out in, in most right people, writers talk about this. The characters, one of your uh, interviewees said, the characters stood up and revolted in the second <laughs> chapter of his book, second half. The, what you're working with in a lot of creative fields, you're working with something that's out there and you see it and you're just kind of luring it in. You're reeling it in. And so I've learned how to get into that space more quickly and solve creative problems drawing on those kinds of um, abstract, nonverbal voices or whatever, you know, movements or, or energy that you're tapping in. I don't want to get too weirdo about it, but I think to be creative, um, you have to be tapped into that source of all this. Um, and many of the, like the, the elk and the glade is, a, I read it now. And I think a lot of writers say this, I can't, I don't know how I wrote it. I don't, it's not something I can really explain very clearly anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, how the poems were ordered, why these and not others. Um, 
but I was just tapping into something. And at the time I felt like I'm tapping into the voice of my grandmother or whatever, but that intangible aspect is something that I've become closer to in working with this. Um, and I think it's also caused me to examine life much more fully. You know, many things that poems that come to me are memories or experiences as a child, experiences as an adult, um, things that tick me off on the streets of New York. <laughs> Which just, can be any number of things. Any number any, of things. In I any moment. <laughs> I have a poem coming out about a meltdown I had at the coat check at the Metropolitan Museum, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you just, this whole idea of self-awareness and experience as a teacher and a tool is what I think has been expanded in the three or four years that I've been really focusing on this. I think what I'm hearing in that too is a trust in that that voice, in that intuitive voice. Um, would you say that you trust your intuitive voice more than you used to? Yes. And I also trust that it's never going to let me down. You know, when I was in grad school and I first got these writing exercises in class, like write a scene with three characters, one of whom doesn't say a word, you know, that kind of premise. Well, you're going to write that scene. It's there, you know, it, it, just as stupid as that prompt is, you have a scene in you that will answer that. And I, 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 I can already, I'm like, oh my God, that's hilarious. I, 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 I've, got, I've got a kind of a scene started to formulate exactly. kind of this lurker in the scene that is not going to say anything that for any number like, ooh, why aren't they talking? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and that's, and poetry thrives on prompts, you know, yeah. and, and, and I'm very much, I love forms. I love sonnets, hustles, villanelles, pantoums, all these really, you know, word gamey ideas, really, I respond very much to them. And so um, it's a way of shaping and breaking, it, it's a way of breaking down your linear thinking. When you have to rhyme, you're going to find a word you would not have used. Mm. And it may be amazingly better. It may be awful, but it may be amazingly better. I love it. I love it. This has been a tremendous conversation, and I, I literally cannot wait for people to hear this conversation. Uh, I'm, I so love the way that you have uh, have pulled at threads in your life and and followed them. Um, and I hope people hear something in this for themselves to listen and trust to listen to their own inner voice and trust it and pull on those threads. Cause, cause I think that there's so much possibility for all of us in, in doing that, you know? Well, thank you. Yeah. Can you read another poem for us before we go? Yeah. I, I thought this might be fun. This is a poem that I wrote fairly recently, but it actually takes place in Rome while I was there as a bureaucrat probably just after I got back from Spain with all this, like, I'm going to change my life kind of thing. Oh, so that kind of energy. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But in the meanwhile, I was doing a massive summer project stuck in Rome at the wrong time of year and everything. So it's called Night Rider. August. I am sleepless and stuck in Rome, working a job from someone else's dream. Tossing off clinging sheets, I go to the window and widen the shutters for more air. Faint stars sprinkle the golden dome of Roman night, 
to its fetid haze of hiatus. Their lights are almost audible in the vacated silence of cats hunting the ruins of the red-lamped naves. The sweet mountain zephyr, and only on this sea does zephyr pertain, descends from the hills, flushes the day's dry heat out to sea, and soothes my beaded brow. A rat-a-tat-tat catches my drowsy ear, a drumbeat, then a cymbal. Someone is typing. From my airy, the stories of windows wrap around the courtyard in a 1930s grid. Geometry was progress then. One or two lit windows sentinel the shadows. The erratic rhythm almost echoes, traceless. It is a sound soon to be silenced for all time, that tap-tap-tap-ching of the 20th century lyre. It calls to my storyteller, my bard, my troubadour. I listen and yearn to take a seat, to crank a slice of paper and carve with those keys a lament, a tirade, an epic launched by a golden apple, a lullaby, or how it feels to gaze out on an August night and hear someone's mind at play, inviting me along to leap from this life and incise a new story. Wow. When did you write that? Um, I'd say two years ago. That's what I thought you said. Wow. But I can feel the visceral. I can feel how visceral it is. Um, as if you had written it when you were in Rome and you talking about the typewriter and that sound that, that has been annihilated by the moving on to computers. Do you ever write with the typewriter? I have to no. ask. No, <laughs> not for 30 years. <laughs> we <laughs> used them at MTC when I was writing script reports and, you know, it was sort of the bane of our existence. But yeah, I bet. Since then, and people would laugh at us then, you know, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> but uh, no, no. And it, it started, I, I was on an I was an interview show and this woman was talking about her mother used to type up her poems for her and the sound of the typewriter was so inspiring to her. And I thought, I remember a sound of a typewriter, you know, and then the memory came back. And it really was a, a massively powerful moment in my life that that evening, that night of hearing that and just wishing that were me doing whatever they were doing, you know, instead of whatever I was doing at that time. Right. Yes. Ah, yes, I've been there. Um, so when is the next book going to be published? So Good Housekeeping, my next book, is coming out in April uh, from Poetswear Prada, and it will be available for pre-order uh, starting in the after the first of the year. I'm very excited. It was just made an editor's pick by uh, Publishers Weekly Book Life. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Uh, Elk in the Glade was also an editor's pick. So that's uh, two for two now, and I'm very happy about that. That's but, amazing. Congratulations. Um, yeah. So I'll be doing a lot of readings, and we're looking for um, some commercial partnerships with the readings, like housekeeping, you know, stores that have businesses in that area. I want to do some things around that. So I love uh, that. my old sponsorship world from exactly. See, pulling <laughs> pulling all the experience from past lives Everything forward into material. this one. There you go. There you go. <laughs> How can people find you? Uh, my website is brucewhitaker.com and that will give you all the links to my Instagram and Facebook. And I'm, I do videos once in a while on TikTok. So look for me there as well. And I have a sub stack, Bruce Whitaker, 
where I, right now, I'm going through the deeper backgrounds to the poems that are coming up in Good Housekeeping. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I will have all the links to all the things in the show notes. And thank you so much for spending time with me today. Oh, I it's loved been so this fun, conversation. Mark. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I just, uh, as you can tell, this is you, you, as you speak the thing, the values that have driven my life. And I'm so happy to be part of your effort to share these kinds of stories. Thank you, Bruce. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation with Bruce Whitaker. If you want to know more about him or get a copy of his book, I'll have links in the show notes for you. You can just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and look for episode 170. And remember, the conversation doesn't have to end here. Share your thoughts and your comments with me. You can send me an email to latebloomerliving at gmail.com. Get in touch with me on social media. I'm there on Instagram as latebloomerliving. And you can always join the email list for weekly updates to be sure you never miss an episode. I am always wanting to hear from you with your feedback, your ideas, just get in touch. I love it. Uh, If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review for the podcast. Your feedback really does mean the world to me, and it helps others discover the podcast. So until next time, my friend, stay curious and inspired and always be blooming. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.